Well, brothers and sisters, it's, it's great to be back. I'm always glad to be invited to come and open God's Word with you. The Word we're going to turn to this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, and I want us to think about how the Gospel shapes our relationships, and in particular, marriage. From Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking uh, at Paul's instruction to husbands and wives. I'll be picking up the reading at verse 18, and then, pardon me, skipping uh, down to verse 22 through to the end of the chapter, as we ponder how does the gospel shape the way that we relate to one another in the most intimate relationship of all. So let me invite you to hear now God's Word. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. This is God's Word. May He write it on our hearts. Now, I want to address mainly the husbands from this text this morning. And whatever you might think that you are hearing me say about Paul's words about the headship of husbands, I I want you to filter it through this story, perhaps familiar to you, of the two boys who disappeared from their home near the banks of the Mississippi River. And uh, they were gone for some time when the fear came over the family and the neighbors that they had gone down to the Mississippi where there is constant dredging to make way for the barges and sand is pulled out and piled up on the side. Well, what happens is, as the water pours out of that sand, it runs channels down underneath the sand, which are unseen, and then back out, and it becomes an incredibly dangerous place to be. 
because you think you're climbing a mountain of sand and there's nothing underneath. And as it happens, the fears of the family were confirmed as they hunted for the two children down by the banks. They saw the head of one of the boys and they ran up to him and he was by this time unconscious, buried in sand up to his neck. And they revived him and they began to dig him out. And they said to the young boy, where is your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. Now, what I want you to do with that story is replace the older brother with the husband and the younger brother with the wife. And you understand Everything that I want to communicate to you about what headship means in marriage. It is a picture of the gospel lived out in marriage. And it will involve the drama of the gospel. It will involve the demand. And it will involve death. I want you to think about these sort of things. And by the way, I, I want to affirm for you at the very beginning <clears throat> that I have not mastered headship in my own home. Nobody has, of course, except Jesus alone, who is the perfect head of his bride. We've all seen many broken marriages. But what God commands, he commands for our good and I want to encourage you that the sweetness you've tasted in Christ come from, comes from the same God who calls a husband and wife to relate to one another in this way. And so, while there are many questions that a text raises, there are many questions our culture raises about a text like this, and I'm certainly not going to have time to address or even begin to address all of them, and I'll leave most of those for Corey because he'll be back this week. Call him. It's great to be a visiting preacher. But I do want to say, if you are married, keep your ears open. Think about marriage now before you get married. If you're single, what are you going to be signing up for, man? What are you going to be signing up for, ladies? What will you be looking for? These are the kinds of things I want us to think about as we consider the drama, the demand, and the death of headship. Now, in the first place, I want you to see that Paul emphasizes what is headship about. Headship highlights the drama of the gospel as it is lived out in marriage. In verses 31 and 32, Paul pulls back from what he's telling husbands, and he quotes Moses, and he says it applies to Christ. And the church, when he says a man will leave his father and his mother and will cleave or unite with or hold fast to his wife and the two will become one. And I'm saying this is about Jesus and his people. And then you go back to verse 23 and the instructions, particularly to wives, and he lays this as a foundation. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see what Paul is saying. He's saying marriage is about something much bigger than two people enjoying happiness. Or not being alone and lonely. Or having righteous sex. Or populating the earth with kiddos, right? It is about all those things, but it is about much 
more than that. It is about, it is about two people fulfilling the role in headship and submission of daily living to each other the drama of Jesus as his bride. So he says to the man, be Jesus to her and to the wife. Be the church to him. And so the man is called to move towards her, to embrace her, to love her to himself as Christ did his people, as she responds to him, welcomes him, receives him, respects him. And together, these two are no longer two but one, and they accomplish more together than they could ever accomplish apart. That's what marriage is. It's about something enormously important about more than just being happy and not being alone and enjoying pleasure and having children. These roles aren't arbitrarily assigned. They're not reversible without obscuring God's purpose for marriage. God's trying to say something about His Son and about His church in the way that we relate to one another in marriage. We're to be a living and breathing and walking and talking illustration of the love of Christ for his church. So let me say a few things about what this is not. This is not about inequality. It is not about superiority. Among humans, we are all equal before God, equal at the level of creation, equal yet different as one Theologian put it, God has ordained two complementary ways of being his image, of being human, male and female, of which neither is superior to the other. But role relationships in marriage, they do not imply inferiority or superiority, but they focus our responsibility so that the ends of marriage might be effectively attained. In other words, so that we might live out before people what the gospel is. And so, yes, Adam was created first. Eve was made as a helper for him, a helper suitable for him. A helper is no inferior. A helper helper is God's word for himself coming to the aid of his people. At the most, this means not that he's better than her, but that he needs her to be his aid. It's also not, headship is also not about whether a, a wife lets her husband be the head. Whether or not she gives him the freedom and the liberty to act as head. He is Head, Paul says, not go be the head. He is the head, however poorly he exercises that responsibility or however poorly she responds to him. He's head because Jesus says he's head. And headship also does not mean he must make every decision in the home. It means he trusts her. He consults with her. He values her counsel and wisdom and desires and opinion and need. He knows that, for instance, she's more competent than him in certain areas. And so he relies on her. The the Proverbs 31 says about the godly wife that the heart of her husband trusts in her. 
In my home, the way this works is this, in one instance anyway. I, I tend to overreact in discipline. My wife tends to be much cooler and at ease. And so when something goes wrong, like Daniel steals Abigail's bike and has gone all day with it, I want to take his bike away for a year. That sometimes comes out of my mouth unwisely because that's not going to happen. But it's my knee-jerk reaction to react in discipline, to wildly exaggerate how bad this was and how hard the discipline is going to be. And my wife, with great patience and wisdom, is able to cool me down, enabled me to pull back and rethink, because she's patient with sin in my children. Now, sometimes she's too patient. And she's gentle and meek. And if I permitted it, my children would run right over the top of her sometimes. And so she needs me to play the heavy. But you understand what I'm saying is it's not as though the husband is always to make all the decisions and the wife should just get in line. The husband relies on his wife. He needs his wife. She's amazingly competent in a variety of ways by God's grace. But when a decision is made, the burden of the responsibility for what that decision is rests on the shoulder of the husband. He may decide what you have said is right, and he goes for it. He may decide that they, though they disagree, he will go with his wife's idea and not his own, but he will be responsible to God ultimately for it. It certainly doesn't give him the right to be wrong. I'm the head. We'll just do whatever I say. God may be the head of this home. I don't know. No, no. But, but it is the case that as in Genesis 2, after the fall into sin and the rebellion, when God came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he came to Adam and laid on him the burden of the responsibility for what happened. And so I want to say a number of things by way of application to those who are dating or nearing that time, perhaps. This does not apply in the same way. A guy is not head of a girl that he is dating. She is under the responsibility and authority of her own father. She's under the covenant headship responsibilities of her dad. That's the beautiful picture of the marriage ceremony, right? Dad walks his daughter down the aisle as God walked Eve down the aisle and hands her off to Adam, or he hands her off to another man. And the question is asked before that happens to the man, will you have her? And to the daughter, will you have him? And then to the dad, and who gives her away? But until then, she's under the authority by God's design for her good and protection, under the authority of the responsibility of dad. And so she does not have to obey a man that she is dating. 
She's not under uh, no responsibility in that way. Now, after they get married, everything changes. Two months after they get married, the daughter calls her dad after the first big fight. She says, Dad, I want to come home. What does dad say? Honey, you are home, right? You don't come back here. I just want to say this. I mean, if you're considering marriage, you should be asking questions like, does this man show signs of being a good leader in the relationship? Does he initiate time together in the relationship? Does he initiate spiritual conversation? Now, look, look, if, if she has to constantly nudge him to lead, plead with him to lead, he'll resent it. And she'll be miserable. That's why even at the level of dating, I would say there's great wisdom in saying you'll be happier, ladies, if you let him pursue you instead of pursuing him. Let him chase you now or you'll be chasing him the rest of your life. If you let him chase you and you let him catch you, you'll have much more confidence that his heart is in it and it's real in him rather than just responding to what's in your heart. Because one of the default modes of man is passivity. And what we're looking for is the kind of love that moves him to activity. We don't want to end up like as many men default to as they default to their sin mode. Like that mother of three who told Brian Chapel, my husband hasn't made a decision regarding our family in two years. He makes no attempt to discipline the children. That's left to me. He never consults me about taking out-of-town work assignments. He comes and he goes seemingly without any regard for my feelings or our children's needs. They don't even know him. All he does is come home from time to time and break our routine before leaving again. I don't have three children, she said to Dr. Chapel. I have four. And too many marriages are like that, man. But God calls you to live out the drama of redemption, the drama of the gospel in your marriage. And headship means taking ownership, authority, responsibility for the well-being of the relationship, for the well-being of your beloved, as Jesus does. So that's the first thing, to, to live out the drama of Jesus and his bride. And the second is this, headship demands using that authority and responsibility in impossible ways. I mean, who can really do this? Be Jesus to her, Paul says. Be the church to him. It's, it's, it's beautiful and amazing to think about. And yet, how hard is that? The wife is called here to an amazingly difficult thing, to respect a man who isn't perfect like Jesus. And in some marriages, that's amazingly painful. And here's the husband's calling. Love her like Jesus loves the church. And the ideal is what they are to aim at. The ideal is what they will both fall short of. Right? Each and together, therefore, they will need Jesus and His grace. 
to forgive them and to enable them to forgive one another and to enable them to be patient as they grow into the role that God has called them to. But just because the ideal is unattainable in this life does not mean we chuck the whole thing. The most, most faithful husband and wife, the most faithful, glorify God by displaying his relationship to the church and the churches to him. But even the worst Christian husband and wife who fail time and again to fulfill these responsibilities also glorify God and display the drama of the gospel as they forgive one another. So don't give up on marriage. Don't give up living out these roles. If there is anything worth doing, it is worth doing poorly. Failure teaches us. It shows me my bent to self-love and self-reliance. Failure exposes a man's atom-like tendency to passivity and to be apathetic when he sits back in his weakness and he won't protect and defend his wife nor lead her in the ways of the Lord. And it exposes his fallen nature in aggressively dominating his wife through abusing his strength to control and manipulate and intimidate. Failure exposes his apathy or his abuse, and both are wrong. And failure on her part exposes the wife's Eve-like tendency to take control of her own destiny and to not listen to the Lord. And so she tramples her husband's authority she attempts to dominate her husband, to manipulate him through shame, ridicule, withholding intimacy, refusing to follow his lead. What I'm saying is this, that, that marriage will show you that you are broken in ways that you have never imagined. And Jesus, in his love, draws near to the broken and the contrite of heart who need a Savior. Who can handle this role and the demand of authority and responsibility of headship? Nobody can handle it. Who's got the strength for it? Nobody. We're weak. That's why this text in our reading began at verse 18. Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way that the filling of the Spirit works itself out and shows itself to be real is in all these things he lists. The concluding one is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he turns right to the marriage relationship. In other words, he's saying, you need the Holy Spirit of God to do in you and through you a work that you are incapable of. You need to lean on the Lord as the Bible commands to your weakness. So if your weakness is an inability or an unwillingness to respect your husband, the Bible commands to your weakness. And if your weakness is a passivity or an abuse that doesn't love her, as Jesus loves his bride. It doesn't love her like you love yourself. Jesus commands to your weakness and wants you to lean on him. And so what does that look like day to day? And here's the third and final thing. Headship means dying to yourself every day. 
and living for your wife. This is how Paul puts it in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. What you need to do, Jesus says, is love her not because of how attractive she is, but love her with gospel love. Jesus determined to love us in spite of our unattractiveness. Jesus loves us not to be served, but to serve and to give himself for us. Love her like that. And that requires death. Death to you. Death to your hobbies. So that you can spend time with her when time is short. Death to your right to make decisions, men, unilaterally, without consulting anyone. You are no longer an island. Death to friendships with other men that consume too much time away from your wife and responsibilities. Death to friendships with other women as you forsake all others to cleave only unto her. Death to being served so that you can serve. Headship is not a right, as somebody put it, not to help, not to clean, or right to have sex whenever you want, but it is a responsibility to help and cook and clean whatever it is that needs to be done, and to have sex as often as she wants for her well-being. Are you learning, in other words, to die to yourself now and to live for Christ now? That's what a husband is to do. Dying to yourself to live for her glory. And Paul talks about, and he's utterly realistic here, the wife that you are dying to yourself for is not a perfect bride. She's full of spots and blemishes and wrinkles. That's the bride of Christ that Jesus came for. I mean, let's be honest for a moment. Uh, to my great annoyance, I have a blemish on my shirt right here. If your eyes have been staring at yes, that's not a wrinkle. It is a dark spot that was not on this shirt when I left Fayetteville this morning. And I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how it got on this shirt between there and here. But this is not the first clean or previously clean white shirt I've had in the last 12 hours. No, I ironed the good shirt, the new one. And that stupid iron had something on it that got right here. I mean, of all the places, the one spot, which again was going to be visible to every eye. And I tried to get it out, and I made things worse. And so Melinda got up at 6 o'clock this morning and ironed me a new shirt, and I got it all spotted up again. <laughs> We're all full of marks of brokenness. You're not called to love a perfect bride. But can you imagine, can you imagine a clean, white Nicely pressed, starched shirt in all its glory, untouched by the filth of human hands. Can you just imagine for a second that perfect shirt? Can you imagine the perfect person? 
You know, in glory, C.S. Lewis said, if we could see a glorified saint who lives in the presence of God in their embodied state, we would be tempted because of the majesty of the person to fall in worship before their feet. Radiant in perfect righteousness and holiness and a heart beating only and always with other-centered love. That's the person your wife is going to be because Jesus is so committed to his bride. He's going to make her that. He loves her and he loves her in prospect of her glory. And he's going to bring her there. If your wife is unattractive to you, if her sin bothers you time and again, love her not because she's attractive, but love her in prospect of what Jesus is going to make her radiant in glory and give yourself to the ministry that Jesus gives himself to in his church, to wash her with the water of the word, to come and bring the gospel again before her faults and her sins, as you would do for your own. Be the first to repent Be the first to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I did that again. Please forgive me and show her the way of the gospel in being quick to repent and easy in forgiving. That's what it means. Bring her again and again to the goodness of the gospel and tell her you're looking ahead to the day when you'll stand with her hand in hand before the throne of God and say, we're here because of your grace and she's beautiful. You'll have to die to yourself to live for her glory. That's what he says. And so, let me ask you these questions. If if you're dating... Women, are you prepared for and do you wish for this man to be your head? Will it be for your blessing and for his blessing and for the advance of God's kingdom for you to submit to him, however we understand that term? And men, ask this of yourself. Do I love this woman with a desire to see her in glory, blessed forever in the presence of Jesus? And would I do anything? to care for and protect and preserve and make possible that. And if you are married, are you living the drama of Jesus and his bride? Husbands, are you leaning on Jesus to enable you to do what is otherwise impossible? In what way are you dying to yourself to live for her Because Jesus died to give you life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know perfectly all the ways of our failure, all our unintentional and intentional sin. Forgive us for Jesus' sake. Change us. Humble us. Give us forgiving hearts to one another that we might have greater intimacy and bring greater glory as we display the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.